Welcome to the No Meh Movies Podcast. How many times have you heard a movie is all right, it's average, it's just okay. If you ask your friend if you should see it and they say, meh, I'm Davey Barris, he's Darren Cross, and on this show we'll break down and review these movies and decide once and for all if these meh movies are good or bad, and whether or not you should watch them, because on this show there are no meh movies. Now, to go over the criteria for what makes a meh movie, it must be between 40 and 60 on the tomato meter, which scores out of 100, or 4 and 6 on IMDb. Now, the movie we picked this week, because the live-action Aladdin is coming out in theaters, so we decided to dig back into the Disney vault, and we're going to review Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which scores a 49% on Rotten Tomatoes, and scores a 6.9 on IMDb. Before we uh, get into our review, a spoiler warning. If you haven't seen it, we will be discussing the whole movie. So, spoiler warning for Atlantis The Lost City. And a quick recap of the movie. For those of you who haven't seen it in a long time or have never seen it before, the movie is about a young cartographer and linguist named Milo Thatch. It's set in uh, 1914, and Milo's grandfather was an explorer, and Milo is obsessed with finding Atlantis, the lost city. A eccentric millionaire named Preston Whitmore, who is friends with his grandpa, finds him, says that he is setting out an expedition and wants Milo to go with him to be their linguist to translate the uh, Atlantean language. And a motley crew is thrown together, and they go on this great underwater sea adventure to find the lost city of Atlantis. Which leads us to our first category. Darren, were you entertained? Yes, I was. I was entertained. It was. Um, it was a pretty, pretty good adventure movie. Plus, I thought that the writing for the motley crew was really good. I thought it was quite funny. Kind of kept you entertained throughout the whole thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna wait on the next thing I was gonna say into uh, for a little bit related mostly to the animation, but I think overall, yes, I was entertained. It was an entertaining story, and it was a capturing adventure. I don't know how much I was entertained. No, I think I was distracted by a lot of things, and uh, although I do enjoy a good adventure movie, I don't know if this movie this movie entertained me. There were a lot of, and we'll get to things and successes and failures, but uh, there, yeah, there were a lot of things that kind of caught me up and distracted me and uh, kind of took me out of the adventure. So I'm going to say I was not entertained. Fair. It's fair. All right. So our next category is does the movie do what it was supposed to do? Now for Disney, this was a a big leap for them because this is their first animated adventure movie. Now, plenty of their movies have had adventure. I'm sure you could say Aladdin has adventure in it. Beauty and the Beast had adventure in it. Uh, But this was their first true adventure animated feature film that they tried. So, did the movie do what it was supposed to do? Again, I'm going to say overall, yes. Um, I guess I was a little disappointed in since it's such supposed to be such sort of like an epic adventure uh, i wish the this is so this is two years before finding nemo came out i wish the animation 
or the quality of the, the technology was better because it just seemed, I don't know, sort of flat, I guess might be the way to describe it. Yeah, it was a combination of their 2D drawing, but it, they were using computer animation heavily in this movie. Right, 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 right. But I don't think they were, you know, it wasn't like a, they didn't, the production company wasn't Pixar. It was just like Walt Disney's digital animation. Yeah. At this time, uh, Disney doesn't own Pixar right, at this time. Right. Pixar has a distribution deal with Disney, but Pixar doesn't, uh, Disney doesn't acquire Pixar, I believe until 2000. And I was just looking at this until 2006. Okay. So yeah. So yeah. this is pre Pixar. Right. Right. For me, as far as like storytelling, I'd say it did what it was supposed to do. It wasn't, when you think about the story of trying to find Atlantis, I don't think it was as visually stunning as you may have set expected sitting down to watch the movie. Uh, in contrast to not being entertained, I think the movie does do what it was supposed to do. Like, so the crew was um, wearing t-shirts. Hang on, let me pull up my IMDb trivia here because I want to get this one right. This one's pretty funny. The crew was wearing t-shirts that read Atlantis, fewer songs, more explosions. <laughs> And they got that right. I mean, the adventure aspects of this movie were definitely all there. Uh, monsters, explosions, uh, I, aerial battles Yeah, in a Call cave that. underwater? Yeah. <laughs> um, Flying machines. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to our next category, did the actors bring it? Now, the cast for this movie, we've got Michael J. Fox as our lead voice, uh, Milo Thatch. We got James Garner, who played, is that Commander Lyle Rourke? Yeah. Cree Summer played our Disney princess, Princess Kida. I'm not going to try to say her last name. They even make a joke of it in the movie. <laughs> uh, we got Don Novella playing Vinny. We got Phil Morris as Dr. Sweet. We got Claudia Christensen as Helga. A couple other names you might recognize. John Mahoney as Preston Whitmore. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of Frasier. Oh, yeah. I love Frasier. You might, if those of you out there might know him as the grandpa from Frasier. Yep. And Jim Varney as Cookie, the cook, in his final role. He actually oh. died towards the end of production. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Oh, and I cannot leave out Leonard Nimoy as the king. <laughs> king of Atlantis. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Darren, did the actors bring it? I always I find this challenging in like an animated film, right? Because you're just getting voice. Um, I will say that from an from an entertainment standpoint, I thought Don Novello was hilarious. There was a lot of like very and it's very much in a Don Novello kind of way. It's a lot of like subtle humor. So he's saying a lot, and you have to like really kind of pay attention to what he's saying. Um, and it's pretty entertaining. And then also. Um, the person who I think it was Florence Stanley played Mrs. Packard, who was like the radio, yes. the radio lady. Yes. <laughs> and so I thought that she, that her character was was very was very funny. Um, she sort of had the same her her emotion level did not change. Like she was always just like this is just another day on the job kind of thing. And I thought that was very funny. I mean, none of these characters really fit together at all. That's right. kind of the point yeah. of the, yeah. you know, Dirty Dozen type movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, she she definitely stood out as a character. <laughs> um, and then, you know, as far as like, you know, lead role being Michael J. Fox, 
I don't know if he brought it. I mean, I think I did, he did a good job. It was it was very Michael J. Foxy, like it was in his wheelhouse for sure. Like I don't think he had to necessarily extend himself very much to to play the Milo Thatch. Here's my hang up with Michael J. Fox as the lead in this movie. I'm a huge Michael J. Fox fan, huge fan, but Michael J. Fox works because he's so gosh darn charming. Like Back to the Future works, and they remember they they replaced their original actor, who was Eric Stoll, and got Michael J. Fox to come in after they shot like a third of Back to the Future, and it works because he's so charming. He's got the the boyish charm, and whatever the character design, I don't know if they designed the character before or after they cast Michael J. Fox, right? But the character had none of that charm. He's awkward, he's clumsy, He's he doesn't have that same kind of smile that Michael J. Fox has. So I don't think the Michael J. Fox voice works without being able to see Michael J. Fox. Yeah. So he's just not your top pick for a voice actor unless the character looks like him. That's yeah, what you're I, saying. Yeah. Well, I know he's done other voice work before, but uh, you got to make it a charming character Yeah. if you're going to use that voice. That's fair. Uh, I did enjoy James Garner as uh, Commander Lyle Rourke, another yeah. submarine commander. This is we're doing a lot of sub movies already in the you No know, Man Movies podcast. Whether we knew it or not, going <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought James Garner did a really great job uh, as the commander. He's he his voice is just kind of overwhelming. I mean, anyone would be intimidated of just the voice, and that works great for this commander role. You know, they draw him as this. Not as big as Dr. Sweet, but they draw him as a pretty big, intimidating guy. And uh, the voice fits perfectly, I thought, with that character. And he uh, he delivered. I thought he really came through on every line. Yeah, and it was interesting that, and this is more on the, I guess, on the animation side, but he still had speaking parts during it. But, like, towards the end of the movie, they really made the choice to, like, almost turn him to like into, like, an e- mad, evil maniac. Like, he was... He got to the point of being almost like um, possessed, I guess would maybe be the right word. Obsessive. Yeah. Because like when he starts turning into like, I don't know exactly what happened. Like the crystal like gets on his skin or in his bloodstream or something. And oh, then he yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then he definitely gets. Right. So he gets sort of this like mad psychotic, but he was still a talking parts during that. And so I thought that that worked well. Yeah, yeah. So good casting there. Uh, Cree Summer as Princess Kida. I thought she was fantastic. Uh, but I'm gonna save. I'm gonna save this for successes and failures. Okay. Uh, how about Jim Varney as Cookie? <laughs> Jim Varney, who you might remember from the Ernest movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he was. It was good. It was again. I mean, I think the. the the most that his character did was really bring home the idea that these like people do not belong together because he was should have been in like a western like yeah like uh, an eighteen like, fifties western movie yeah, right yeah like on the on the wagon trail cooking food for everybody not like in this high tech machine under the ocean <laughs> again they were trying for like a dirty dozen feel yeah. I'm not sure these characters all fit in the same way other movies have used that same approach right they were they were almost like too obscure from each other like there was 
Yeah. 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 You got uh, Audrey Ramirez, who is the mechanic, the teenage mechanic, who's like rough tumble kid from the Bronx. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Cookie, who's from the 1850s wagon train. <laughs> and then like the the mole guy, he made the Molari, right? Yeah. yeah. He made sense, I guess, for for the adventure that they were having. Like, you're probably gonna have to dig. That makes sense. And he was, but. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that character. Yeah, all these characters felt like they were from different movies. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And we talked about Vinny. I thought uh, very entertaining, but he almost had like this like European kind of uh, pizzazz to him, where yeah. like it almost would like he belonged in like some some very sophisticated heist movie or something like that. Yeah. I could seem like an Italian job. Right. Yeah. Movie, yeah. Right. I will tell you that uh, according to the IMDb trivia, a lot of his dialogue was improv. Almost all of it. He would look at the words on the page and then improv all his dialogue. That makes me very happy. Yeah. All right, Darren. Uh, that's going to lead us into our next category, which is uh, successes and failures. And uh, I'm just going to jump back into my earlier thought. Princess Kida. I think that she was a success, but her use was a failure. I thought that they had a really well-brought-to-life, well-rounded character in Princess Kida, and I would have loved to have spent more time with her and gotten to know her better, the way maybe we get to know Mulan or Pocahontas and some of their earlier films. I think she could have been one of the top Disney princesses, but they just didn't write the story in that way yeah i mean the story was written for milo thatch to be the main character and so like i th- i think they were were probably hesitant to spending too much time on her um although i i do agree that they could probably could have or sort of communicating her story and how it relates to the history of atlantis yeah, and it's, again, they're hamstrung by the narrative because they wrote a story where you don't get to the city. You get a, a prologue where you see the city, but then you don't see them for first full half of the movie. Yeah, it's about um, halfway through they finally get to Atlantis, yeah. And so you're hamstrung by that story. Now, they could have done a story where she comes to the surface, finds him, gets his team together because they need their help, and brings them to Atlantis. That would have gotten her involved in the movie from from the beginning uh it's true that's not the story they went with so right, yeah. uh, that's like i said her character absolutely a success Cree summer's performance and she's a voice actor that you've heard in a lot of stuff mm-hmm. big success her use in the movie failure okay that's fair a success that i had was um i did think that Rourke's character did a good job of capturing one of the themes of not not only the movie but the idea of Atlantis in general which is sort of like this kind of like capitalism or like greed sort of thing that is going on where money is really the ultimate motivator behind so like there's all the romanticism of exploration and like the awe of it is not really in play in his mind and that's sort of communicated the idea of capitalism that in the end like the goal is just how do I personally gain from this um, so I thought that was a success from I mean really to a little bit of the whole team because they kind of you know they kind of go back and forth with yeah they're with Rourke oh no no nah, they're back with Milo and back and forth um, but I thought Rourke's character did a good job did a good job of communicating that 
All right. Picking up on some themes. I like it. Um, so another success for me is uh, we mentioned a little bit in the um, did the movie do what it was supposed to do was the adventure and the action adventure. Uh, I really love the scene with the Leviathan, which is the robotic-like lobster creature mm-hmm. that they first encounter when they're getting close to the tunnels for towards Atlantis. Uh, that scene was really well done. Uh, that monster was as scary as any Disney monster that they've done in the past. And uh, the way they built the scene... I mean, the way they built the scene... Uh, really made you feel on the edge of your seat and believe in the adventure uh, aspects of this film. Uh, And again, you kind of get that a little bit with uh, the battle at the end, uh, which again is an aerial battle underground, underwater, (laughs) which we're still going to get to in quick picks. So yeah, so that was a big success for me. I really liked those scenes. Another success I had in general was just sort of like the, whether or not, you agree that like the ragtag bunch of people really fit together. I thought the sort of comic relief was was entertaining to sort of fill in the gaps of like when things weren't happening and it kind of helped build the relationship between the team and Milo. They sort of like I think it started to develop from like sort of making fun of each other, um, or picking on Milo and those things were funny and then it's sort of felt like fairly organic with it kind of them understanding why he's there and doing it and then they started to have like real like feelings for or compassion I should say for him all right I I understand the use of humor to build the team but I have to say that the humor for me in this movie does not work at all and it's my biggest failure for this movie oh man they spent so much time worrying about the adventure and the action that whoever was writing this script, I don't know where they were pulling these jokes from, <laughs> but none of them landed for me. They were so painful, um, especially it was very sexualized, like the old man's robe falling down. Mrs. Thatcher sleeps in the nude. I was shocked that like <laughs> there were some really sexualized jokes in here and Every time, every time they try to be funny, like especially from the moment Milo gets on the sub to the moment they get to the city of Atlantis, it is just full of jokes that just come out of nowhere. They're just not funny. They're abrasive. They're they're kind of off-putting. I found the humor off-putting in this movie. Well, I guess we disagree. Finally. Yes. It only took us six episodes. <laughs> All right, what else do you got? Anything else in successes and failures? I have two other failures. One we kind of already mentioned already. Um, and I, and I, again, I don't know the situation of the sort of the contract at the time between or negotiations between. We did say that at this point, um, Disney did not own Pixar, but we did say that they were sort of working with each other already. Yeah. I think for this type of movie, when you, you sort of, unlike other most other Disney movies, uh, the world that they paint is created by them. So people don't go into it having a picture in their mind. Like you didn't go into Aladdin having an idea, any idea of what their world looked like that was created by Disney. Um, with this, you have people going in with an idea of what Atlantis looked just because it's this thing that's been around forever that everyone kind of knows about. 
So you go in with this sort of at least semi-image in your head of what Atlantis looks like. And I think that if they would, I don't know if bringing in Pixar was even an option or something, but I think this would have been a movie to really get a big budget to like really make Atlantis look really, really good. Like this to the quality of some of the other movies you see later on using Pixar or some other company of some sort. Yeah. So this is, um, and it might lead us into a larger discussion, but this movie takes place in what's considered the Disney post Renaissance. So the Renaissance of Disney is the classic films we grew up on. And the reason we're doing this, Aladdin, uh, little, it starts with little mermaid and, uh, beauty and the beast, Aladdin, uh, Pocahontas, Pocahontas, Mulan, uh, all the way up to Tarzan. And these are your musical Disney, your Broadway Disney movies that go all throughout the 90s. And then in 2000 is now considered the Disney post-Renaissance, also known as Disney's second dark age. Because there is a very obvious shift towards computer animated. And they were doing a lot of experimenting. And you have movies like uh, Fantasia 2000, Dinosaurs, which also came out in 2000, which is... I mean, it just reminds me of like an old '90s computer game. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, the Emperor's New Groove, which was pretty successful for them. Uh, then Atlantis in 2001, Lilo and Stitch in 2002, which financially was very successful, probably the most successful from the post Renaissance. Uh, but again, they get back to music in that one. They bring music back in as yeah. an element of their storytelling. Uh, Treasure Planet in 2002, and it goes all the way until Meet the Robinsons and Bolt in 2008, which some consider part of the post-Renaissance, some consider part of the next era because that's a, the first movie that Pixar worked on them with once they acquired Pixar. So this is a, yeah, this is very much considered an era of experimentation. And I don't think they were ready to do what you're asking them to do. Yeah, maybe not. I mean... I wish they would have, I guess is what I'm saying, just because like part of the reason I was excited about the idea of Blu-ray at the time was like, I'm going to get Finding Nemo in Blu-ray and it's going to look beautiful. <laughs> and it did. And it did. Right. So um, I don't know. Just and again, I, I don't know that I don't know what was happening at the time. Maybe it really wasn't an option. But with Finding Nemo just being two years after this, I feel like there, ha- there had to be like some sort of collaboration possibility that could have painted Atlantis more beautifully. I will give the benefit of the doubt to this movie uh, because Finding Nemo is two years later. So uh, the other huge animation movies that came out in 2001 were Shrek, which was the big one, and Monsters, Inc., which was right below it financially. Yeah. Um, I believe they were number three and number four at the box office for 2001 behind Harry Potter and A Lord of the Rings. So, I mean, Shrek and Monsters, Inc. were huge huge movies in 2001 yeah yeah so and, and monsters inc i gotta say the animation in that is far superior yeah. shrek the animation is far superior yeah. than what we got here in atlantis definitely all right i think you had one more i did have one other and maybe i just wasn't fa- fa- maybe this movie was too complicated for me <laughs> but i i didn't quite or i didn't think they explained well like the the light of Atlantis, I I was confused on if it like 
was a positive thing or a negative thing or it was negative depending on who was holding it because it seemed like it was like it kept, it's what Atlantis is it like it was their like sort of power if you will yeah but it was also sort of sacrificial in that because they talk about Kida's mom having to be the one that's sort of yeah at the beginning of the movie it pulls her up right and it's almost like she was like a like she made a sacrifice for atlantis to be the light or something so i don't know i found it very the explanation of what it all meant was a little confusing to me yeah and i guess we have to dive a little bit into atlantis the, the story of atlantis and the history of atlantis so it comes from plato right and in doing my research on Atlantis, uh, Plato used it as a fictional state, concept of a state, so that he could show how uh, powerful the, the true state could be, um, as opposed to the societies of his time. Mm-hmm. And uh, in his works, in his stories, uh it always concludes with Atlantis falling out of favor with the gods and then getting submerged in the ocean. Uh, and I guess what we would have to read a lot more Plato yeah. to understand uh, <laughs> how they fall out of favor with the gods. So uh, I guess the idea of something being omnipresent, this time you have the Greek gods. Um, so very yeah. much that idea of a higher power always being there and kind of judging and watching over society. Yeah. Uh, is something that's always been there with the story of Atlantis. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. In the end of the movie, it's like the you fi- at the end all the um I forget I forget what's the word for like things that that are carved out of wood that are faces. There's a word for that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like a totem pole, but not a totem pole. <laughs> Just a totem. <laughs> Just a totem. Yes, sure. Um, at the end of the movie, you have these totems that are just, I guess, kind of swirling around the light. So I guess that's your representing of like the, your, the gods of Atlantis watching over Atlantis. I believe they said that was the old kings. The old kings. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's why uh, the king dies because he gives his crystal up to there. Milo. So yes. they draw his face. Yeah. He goes up to join okay. the old gods. That's fair. Um, which is a theme in Disney. Actually, yeah. I didn't think Lion King, you know. Yeah. He talks about the old gods up there in the sky, in the stars. Right. That does it for successes and failures. And now it's time to move into a favorite segment. What do the critics say? Yay. Let's take a look at the Rotten Tomato critics and uh, see if their fresh or rotten reviews are fair. All right. So what do you want to start with this week? Fresh or rotten? Mm, Rotten. All right. This week we're starting with the rotten reviews. Our first one is from Todd McCarthy from Variety. Todd says, This blandly conceived and executed attempt at a juvie-style Indiana Jones with Jules Verne trappings recycles familiar adventure and cartoon devices with minimal wit and flair. That's a good review. Dang. Yeah. (laughs) He covers a lot there. So... Trying to be Indiana Jones, I guess, you know, he's saying that Milo is like an Indiana Jones character. He works at a museum. He's a professor, goes on an adventure. He's sleeveless by the end of it. (laughs) Harrison Ford would be proud. Yeah. All right. 
uh, the Jules Verne comes in because he is the author of uh, many books such as Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and Around the World in 80 Days. So Jules Verne is, his source material is probably a lot of the inspiration for what happens. And in fact, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is an early Disney, live action Disney movie from the 50s that is very, very highly regarded. So. This is, that part isn't new territory for Disney. Right. It was the animating of it that was new territory for Disney. I did read in some of my research, read about um, some of the comparisons of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And if if you've read that book, a lot of it, like there's a lot of description and analysis about like underwater creatures and things. And so I think we this came up when we were doing the re- review about um, life aquatic. I almost think that that did a better job of kind of hitting on that than this did. Um, you you sort of get exposed to the understanding that you're in a, a weird world when you do meet the Leviathan thing, the giant yeah. crab, whatever it is. Lobster. Lobster. But beyond that, you don't get into like, until you start meeting some of the, the people of Atlantis, you don't get much of that like, awe and wonder of like where you are like you know the you know the scenery or the nature around you i mean yeah they're like in a volcano and that's kind of cool i guess but you don't there's not a lot of like creatures like running around um you do get the fireflies i guess that set the thing but beyond that i don't think you can make it doesn't didn't feel very twenty thousand leagues under the sea to me yeah i guess everything is mechanical right Right. Yeah, we don't meet any creatures no. that aren't mechanical except for the fireflies. Right. Uh, yeah, I guess that was to show how advanced their society was, but... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. Creatures would have been fun. Um, uh, so he ends his review with saying, uh, with minimal wit and flair. I'll agree minimal wit. You already know how I feel about the humor <laughs> in this movie. Uh, I disagree with minimal flair. This movie's got flair. Yeah. I mean, it's got ships, explosions. It's got, it's got a little pizzazz. Yeah, I think I think that's incorrect. I think if it has anything, it has flair. <laughs> All right, moving on to another rotten review. This is from Jeff Pavere. 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 I apologize, Jeff, if I don't <laughs> pronounce your name. He's from the Toronto Star. And he says that the characters and story are mere narrative lubricant to get us from one digitally goosed sensory assault to the next. So I don't think he liked the action very much. I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, I will say that when they decide to start an action scene, there's just stuff coming out of nowhere. All of a sudden we've got, like, uh, at the end of the movie, they try to make their escape, right, with the crystal. And uh, they're like gonna raise a hot air balloon and like get back to the surface, and the Atlanteans all come on their mechanical shark ships, <laughs> and all of a sudden the soldiers have ships of their own that they just launch out of nowhere. Yeah, and, and yeah, the, sh- the soldiers right. themselves came out of nowhere because for a long, where are they the whole time? <laughs> and he says B group go back, like stay with the trucks or something oh, when they go they into just the city. In the volcano, but there were clearly way more soldiers like pooled <laughs> back there. Yeah, for the final battle. Um, all right, I'm just gonna bring this up now. This movie wants to be Star Wars, I think, so bad. <laughs> 
so bad from the opening scene of the movie you've got the atlantean ships flying and just the way they're flying the patterns that they're flying in flying through the city it felt so much like they were trying to be star wars and then at the end you get this aerial battle again x-wings and tie fighters you know trying to shoot each other down this huge aerial battle and then the soldiers were all faceless they all were wearing gas masks a breathing yeah, mask even though no one else mask. was yeah maybe uh stormtroopers i mean come on they're yeah. basically stormtroopers yeah. this movie tried to star wars so hard <laughs> uh i guess i should have put that in my failures yeah. yeah 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 it was it should never have attempted that moving on to our last rotten review all right we're gonna go with liam lacy from the globe and mail and Liam's Rotten Review is the movie loses sight of those old nuances, character and story, behind a chain of spectacles. Now, we've already talked about the spectacle of this whole thing. Uh, Disney is known for its characters. It's built on its characters. Do you feel like any of these characters live up to the earlier generation of Disney movies that came before it? Hmm. I would say not the main character, uh, which I think we kind of hit on a little bit. I don't think Milo, you could could say, lived up to your other main characters. Um, Rourke is like your your like nemesis bad guy. I would say yes. I think he he did a good job. Um, I think that they did a good job selling that. Um, we kind of already hit on that there is a princess in this movie, but yeah. I don't think. Disney wasn't sure if they were trying to really sell this as a princess movie. I don't really think they were, but yeah, they kind of got into the end of the Disney princess. Yeah. I don't think we get another Disney princess for all really for a long time. Yeah. After this. Yeah. I don't think we get another Disney princess until, um, the frog and the toad. No, uh, the princess and the frog. Yeah. Yeah. Might be the next time. that? That is 2009. Okay, so yeah, yeah, a while. Yeah, I would say of all the characters, honestly, that I think could stack up with the past, I'm going to give it to Cookie. (laughs) (laughs) Like, as far as the Disney sidekick characters go, I think Jim Varney could hang in there with, you know, Chris Rock from Mulan or um, the uh, uh, Clocksworth and, uh, what's his name? The Candlestick, Lemire from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, or Gobert Guildfrey in, in Yago, yeah, <laughs> Yago from Aladdin. Yeah, I think Cookie could easily work with any of those other great Disney sidekicks that we've had throughout the years. All right, moving on to some fresh reviews. We're going to start with Roger Ebert. I love when we get these legendary movie reviewers in here for the Chicago Sun-Times. He said, it's like 20,000 leagues under the sea set free by animation to look the way it dreamed of looking. How do you feel about that? I'm shaking my head no right now. <laughs> now, have you seen 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? I have not seen it, no. I've read the book. I did not see the thing that, that uh, Disney did, though. I went back. I would watch some clips. I watched the trailer just to get a little bit of an understanding of what Roger Ebert might be saying here. Yeah, I got to disagree with this one. The city of Atlantis itself, they put a lot of effort into the architecture and the look of Atlantis. Uh, 
I don't think in any way this is an improvement over the 1950s movie that Disney live action movie that Disney did. I don't think, like you said earlier, I don't think they really captured how amazing this whole journey could have looked. Yeah, they um when you're in Atlantis, it's like yeah, there's a lot of water and a lot of foliage, like things you would expect, but it doesn't necessarily seem like you're in this really foreign land. Like and it's, and then even leading up to it, so like as you're on the ad- adventure, which we which we said we don't get to Atlantis till about halfway through the movie, so on your on your adventure getting to Atlantis you don't they don't come in contact with that many odd things or odd creatures or an odd world like i mean yes it's like under deep sea which again i think you they maybe missed something there because if you in the real world when you get into the deep deep sea there's some weird ass shit out there there's some weird <laughs> stuff right? down there yeah. so um so outside of the leviathan you didn't you don't really encounter much of anything all right, moving on to another fresh review. Piers Beckley from BBC.com says, It's a brave move for Disney and one that deserves to succeed. So I'll ask you, how do you feel about Disney experimenting like this? Like, Do you think it was good that they went through this phase of experimentation? I, I think it, it wasn't a terrible idea. I think they were trying to get out of this sort of pattern that they were in of of mostly making these being known for making these like princess slash royalty movies I guess um, and they were trying to get into doing something that was more of like a journey rather than a story that was just focused on a couple people um, and it could still be obviously this is still focused on Milo and his relationship with his grandfather and finding Atlantis but I think that they were trying to get into something that was a little bit more of a journey a physical journey rather than more of like an emotional or uh, psychological journey yeah and I mean for society to advance you have to keep pushing you have to keep trying new things and anytime technology advances there is always a rough period a growth period uh Look at Apple computers. Like, is a gr- <laughs> Apple is a great example of that, where they like they struggle so hard to like break out and you know surpass all the Windows machines out there, and then next thing you know, the iPhone or the iPod hits and completely changes the game. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's the same way. I mean, they struggle for a long time. It's known as the second dark age. But when they finally come out of it, now it helps that they bought Pixar for $7.4 billion. <laughs> so maybe their experiment didn't work in the end. They're like, oh, God, we have clearly failed at this. We buy We're just going to go buy somebody. <laughs> Which, as we know today in Disney, that's what they do. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad to see where we eventually got. Yeah, we suffered through some bad Disney movies. But I think anyone who today is a fan of Frozen, who's a fan of Moana, is very glad that they suffered as bad as they did in the early 2000s to get to this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you can't expect when a company's, when any company is operating for as many years as they have, you can't expect it all to be gold. Like, I mean, there's just going to, it's just not possible. 
Yeah, and it's actually a very fun journey to go back and look through the ages. There's some good videos on YouTube that take you through the different ages of Disney and what happened and why it happened. The war was going on in the 40s and things like that. It's actually really fascinating history of their uh, animated releases. Hmm. I should check that out. Sounds cool. All right. Our last fresh review comes from Lisa Alspector from the Chicago Reader. Two reviews from Chicago this week. Uh, and this is definitely our most glowing review on Rotten Tomatoes. She says, visually imaginative and even persuasively spiritual, this animated adventure has some unusually complex villains and heroes, and some of the plot and dialogue transcends what's typical in movies intended for a broad or youthful audience. She really liked this movie. That is a glowing review from Lisa. I mean, we did say that some of the villains were a little more complex. You know, there was some complexity to the villains. The heroes, I don't know if there was as much complexity to the heroes. Uh, And the plot and dialogue transcending what's typical for a a youthful audience? No, I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, kids, kids love adventure movies. I mean... Look at, in the 80s, how many great kid adventure movies do you have? I look at the Goonies. Yeah. Um, I remember being young watching Indiana Jones. I probably watched Indiana Jones way before. And we had Star Wars. Yeah. So yeah. I think kids very much in 2001 were ready for adventure movies. Yeah, I think uh, she's overselling what this movie did a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it was, like we said, it was Disney's first animated adventure movie. So she's right there. Yeah, that definitely was transcended what Disney had done before. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I don't think it transcended what's typical in movies intended for broader youthful audiences. No. All right, moving on to our next segment. Darren, now there is a sequel for this. It was straight to video release called Atlantis Milo's Return. Uh, It had to do with something threatening from the top, from the surface, a kraken. And Mr. Widmore and all the crew come back to get Milo and Kida, who's now queen of Atlantis. And they go to the surface to do battle with this Kraken and figure out what's going on up there. Uh, it allowed Kida to learn about the outside world. Uh, so that's where they went with their sequel. I'll ask you if... And it, and it was originally supposed to be... Um, three animated shorts that were going to be episodes for something called team Atlantis. So it was clearly thrown together. I think a lot of Disney sequels in these days were kind of thrown together. Uh, none of them had very much commercial success. Most went right to video. Yeah. If you were to see a sequel from this movie, what would you want to see? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think I would want to see a sequel like the finding Atlantis is like, that's like the thing, right? That's if you do that, I mean, you, you, your your life is great. You don't need to do anything else with your whole life. Um, I don't I don't know <laughs> what else. That's it. We're quitting this podcast. Yep. We're quitting our jobs. <laughs> We're going to find Atlantis. Yeah, right. That would be it. Um, can you drive a submarine? <laughs> I can figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I really don't know what what would you do. I mean, you've 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 made it to the place you were trying to get to, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure like kind of like they did in the ones you were talking about you know Atlantis can go through some additional turmoil things can happen that threatens Atlantis or you could do more selling on the story of 
you know, the greedy capitalist world trying to expose Atlantis, you know, something like that. But I mean, I don't, I don't know that you'd be bringing that much new content to make it really worth doing. Yeah, I, I would love to pitch to you something with like Kida and like some parallels to like Wonder Woman or something like that. But <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'm not feeling a sequel for this. Uh, uh, they kind of did it in this sequel that they did, Milo's Return, where Kida gets to explore the surface a little more and grow as a character. So that's probably where I would go if I were to pitch something. Uh, but then it's not, you know, it's you're telling a totally the the whole like awe and capture of like Atlantis is is not the theme anymore, right? It's just it's just, yeah. it's, it's a different story. Like, the theme is always the journey right. to Atlantis, right? Right. Yeah. All right. I would, uh, as we've said though, I would love to see something like like a, a, a redo, I guess, a remake with like the modern animation technology we have. I think that would be very cool. There we go. Yeah. All right, we'll pitch and remake it. Give it another shot. Yeah. Use what you got with Pixar. Right. right, right. Yeah. Now on to another favorite segment. It's time for quick picks. This includes our nitpicks. This includes fun things that we picked out from the movie. Darren, go ahead and hit me with one of your quick picks. One I had was the final fight scene at the end with when the hot air balloon is going on. Um, Helga, who's second in charge right. behind Rourke, she falls from this balloon seemingly a very far distance it's a very cavernous <laughs> yes. yeah, area that they're in and you're like oh man helga's dead that's unfortunate and then a couple of moments later helga is injured not significantly just kind of like oh god i hurt my back a little bit i slept <laughs> i slept poorly <laughs> and she's ready to fight again so that, that was like is she really okay yeah, I mean the physics in animated movies is always a little off. Yeah, but right. It was a. I thought she was a goner when <laughs> she fell. Yeah. I thought she was a goner. Um, and then similar to that, after she falls and she's still alive, what kind of handgun does she have that can do the damage that all these? I, sh- I think it was a flare gun. Okay. Earlier in the movie, she shoots a flare to see how high uh, okay. the cavern goes. Is this flare gun is that much more powerful than all of the things shooting around the whole entire... <laughs> Have you never seen the movie Captain Ron? <laughs> flare gun can just do more damage than... Oh, actually, you're right. Yeah. In, um, also in, I, th- I want to say, uh, shoot. It's not J- Jaws. It's Jaws, it's a harpoon gun. I think in... Uh, what What's the, the really terrible shark movie with uh, Samuel L. Jack? Jackson. Oh, Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they kill that shark with a flare or something like that. It's something to do with some sort of combustible gas and a flare or like something. Oh, like they that. use the yeah. flare to blow it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And Captain Ron, she shoots a hole in their boat <laughs> and then she fires it at the pirate boat. <laughs> um, and I'm so glad I got to bring up Captain Ron. Um <laughs> That will not be on the podcast. That is a good movie. No. And I'm I, it's too close to my heart. I would never be able to give it a fair review. All right. Uh, what else you got in your quick picks? Um, there were mostly stuff we've already talked about. In general, I was I was much more entertained by the random humor than than you were. Like um, the first time in the movie that I like I I really like laughed out loud, and I think the timing of it was just very good was 
when he's first trying to be sold on going this adventure by uh, Whitaker? Widmore. Widmore, excuse me. When he's first trying to be sold on this adventure by Widmore, and he's talking, Milo's like, oh, I got to, you know, I have to clean this up and do this. I got to tell my job. And basically, he's just saying, oh, we've done that for you. We've done that for you. We've done that for you. Yeah. And then he's like, I got to feed my cat. And then his cat's like, meow. Like, it shows up <laughs> right behind him. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. The cat's here, too. <laughs> that caught me off guard. And I, like, laughed out loud at that. <laughs> so that was good. Could it be because you have a cat? It could be. Yeah. All right. <laughs> How about you? All right. So one of my nitpicks, in the very beginning when the city of Atlantis is under attack, uh, someone runs to like a PA system or like a loudspeaker system and starts yelling. Um, it starts yelling, get to the shelters, get to the shelters. And then two guys take up giant hammers and start hitting a giant bell, a giant <laughs> gong. That is dumb to have two warning systems. They would drown each other out. Like, what if he wasn't saying get to the shelters? What if he was, like, trying to relay more information? Like, <laughs> get to the ships or don't worry, it's going to be okay. Meanwhile, you got two idiots banging a gong. <laughs> and it seems that usually maybe you have a gong because you don't have the technology of physically being able to tell people what's happening, right? Yeah, a siren or a bell <laughs> right. is a warning system when you can't speak to everybody. Right. Yeah. Or Paul Revere could ride through the town, I guess. <laughs> right. That's another way to do it. Yeah. Except it wouldn't be on a horse. It'd be on a whatever Mechanical those are. shark. Yeah. <laughs> Did you notice that? Were you, were you a fan? Were you a fan of the TV show Lost? I was not. So, in the TV show Lost, which comes out a few years later, I think 2004, 2005, uh, there's a character named Charles Widmore, who's a millionaire who is trying to get back back to the island and lost not to give away too many spoilers for lost if you haven't seen it um i thought it was funny is this a prequel to lost he's also an eccentric millionaire who's trying to find an island and funding an expedition could this be a prequel to lost yeah does disney own lost yes it was on abc there you go uh-huh <laughs> There you go, Lost fans. It's actually <laughs> a sequel to the movie Atlantis. That's what the island is. It finally makes sense. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is way deeper than we thought. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of crazy parallels. I mean, he sends a sub. There's energy, magnetic energy, that powers the island and Lost. I mean, there are a lot of parallels. This movie could have used a smoke monster. Yeah. Could Like we said, it needed more monsters. It did, for sure. Could have used a smoke monster. All right. Also, uh, another nitpick with uh, Widmore at the beginning when he first meets him. He says he's doing yoga, <laughs> but he's just cracking every joint in his body. I don't think that's how yoga works. He's, he's doing like weird old man made up yoga or something. I don't know. Cracking every knuckle, <laughs> every joint. That's chiropractory? <laughs> I think this was like pre- yoga really catching on to the mainstream so I, I think they were like trying to sell the yoga is this weird ancient thing that nobody knows about only weirdos do it kind of thing and yeah. so i think they were like we could pretty much make this anything we want and people will believe it oh little did they know that yeah. the yoga craze went, right. i've been to hot yoga i've done it not well yeah. but i've been there yeah. yeah yoga's no joke it's no joke no. no and i didn't crack one knuckle the entire time i was there <laughs> One thing in the story that drove me crazy, how have Milo and Widmore never met before? 
if he was this great of friends with his grandpa and his grandpa basically raised him, like, why not have it be like, Milo, I haven't seen you in a while, my boy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they were trying to go for like, like grandpa had a secret life kind of thing that Milo wasn't allowed to be exposed to almost like a, like a Da Vinci code thing yeah. where like this, you know, where the, in her, the main, the girl in that, her dad, her, her, well, her not grandpa, but se- pretend grandpa is, uh, you know, has a secret life. So I don't know if they were something like that or not. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they were trying to make it mysterious yeah. with uh, who's your Helga showing up in his apartment. Uh, so yeah, they were trying to make it some kind of mysterious benefactor. But then, why do they know each other? Right, like go with one or the other. Right, maybe he was an admirer of his grandpa. That would work. Then they we have no reason for meeting. But the the way they make it sound, they make it sound like they were brothers in arms. And there's no way these he wouldn't know Milo, and Milo wouldn't have heard of one story about him. Yeah, that's true. That could have been another way to solve it. Just have Milo go in and say, oh, my grandpa told me stories about you. Boom. There you go. Yeah. One line. One line. Solve the whole problem. <laughs> okay. I'm going to I'm gonna poke some holes. I'm going to nitpick your favorite character, who is Miss Packard. Let's do it. Communications officer. I don't think you can smoke in a submarine. <laughs> Miss Packard can do anything she wants. That is recycled air. You know she is... The most tenured person on that team. She and can do anything she wants. Chain smoking the entire movie. I don't I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> if you work on a submarine and you're a fan of the No Men Movies podcast, go ahead and tweet at us at No Men Movies. Tell us if anyone can actually smoke on a submarine. I feel like I've one of the many submarine movies we've discussed on this podcast, haven't th- wasn't there someone smoking in one of those ever? E- executive decision. Or uh, not executive decision. Why do I keep doing that? Executive uh, decision. Executive decision is the stealth bomber movie with Kurt Russell and yeah. Steven Seagal. Yeah. Uh, what we're thinking about is, oh my god, this is Hunt for Red October. <laughs> Crimson Tide. Crimson Tide. Crimson <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tide yeah. is the one we're thinking of. For some reason, I have this image in my head of you know how in all the sub movies. The only lights are allowed to be red for whatever goddamn reason. Yeah, of course. <laughs> for some reason, I have this image of the red being drowned out by smoke from uh, Gene Hackman smoking a cigar. So I don't know. I could be totally wrong, but for some reason, I have this image in my head. Yeah, I think he might be smoking in his quarters. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we're leaving out my favorite, absolute favorite submarine movie of all time. Down Periscope. <laughs> Down Periscope with Kelsey Grammer, Rob Schneider, Lauren Holly, William H. Um, look at this cast. Bruce Dern, uh, Harry Dean Stanton, William H. Macy, Rip Torn. What a cast. <laughs> it's probably rated too low for our, our podcast. I, again, I could never fairly review this movie. <laughs> I hold such a place in my heart for Down Periscope. It cracks me up so hard. All right. Um, let's see. Do we have any more quick picks? Oh, yeah. So uh, I was curious. They're using a compass while they're underground. I was very curious. Would a compass work underground? What do you think? I'm going to say yes because you're still working with the pull of earth's gravity yeah so it's about magnetic fields oh (laughs) shows what i know (laughs) yeah 
Don't go exploring with Darren. <laughs> uh, and yeah, uh, according to what I'm reading online, that the magnetic fields still exist as you get down. Uh, I, there was a point where you would get so far down that uh, you'd be boiling. It'd be 500 degrees. Right, yeah. Uh, that you might be below the magnetic fields. Uh, you have to watch out for iron deposits. Any large iron deposits would throw you off. But in theory, uh, for splunking, uh, you know, cave exploring, compass still works that is my biggest fear i will never do that go down into a cave not spelunking not like i can't oh. crawl through a fucking thing that's barely the width of my body and nope 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 Fair enough. claustrophobia intensely what if you get stuck in there you're alive but you're stuck i think my biggest fear is freak out <laughs> i think my biggest fear might be abandoned amusement parks Really? There's just something so <laughs> ominous about these huge mechanical structures just sitting empty, just howling in the wind. And <laughs> we had one for a while here in Cleveland, and it was driving past. It was just so weird. I very, very rarely ever get, like, have physical reaction to movies. Like, I can, I pretty much watch anything, and it's fine. Watching somebody like go spelunking or get like caught or stuck while they're spelunking, I'm like, oh god, please no! <laughs> <laughs> All right, if anyone's got any meh spelunking movies out there that Ooh. we can review, I want to see Darren get all scared. And so my last, my last nitpick, my last quick pick, uh, when Commander uh, Rourke is driving away from Atlantis and his whole crew has decided to stay behind and help Milo and Kida. And he drives or not Kida. I guess he's got Kida right prisoner. Right. When he's driving away, he says PT Barnum was right. Yeah. That got one right over my head. I have no idea. Did you look it up? I saw everybody's best guess. The only PT Barnum line that, uh, people could think of is, and they're not even sure that he actually said this. There's a sucker born every minute. But in this situation, who's the suckers? I guess all of everybody but Rourke. <laughs> For staying behind? I guess everybody but Rourke, yeah. 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 I don't think that's really what P.T. Barnum was saying. <laughs> I don't I totally heard that and I was like, oh, okay. And just moved on. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the I can't move on. When I hear something like that, I can't move on. And that's why it ends up in quick picks. All right. That does it for our quick pick segment. Would you like to hear a little trivia before please. we go out? Yes, please. All right. We got some good things here. So one of the fun things about this movie, and I, I will put it I maybe you should have put it in my successes earlier, but uh they created their own language. They created the Atlantean language. It was created by Mark Oakrend who created the Atlantean language, also created the Vulcan and Klingon languages for the Star Trek franchise. Coincidentally, cast member Leonard Nimoy is in this movie as the king of Atlantis. So he might be the only person that's spoken both Atlantean and Vulcan. That's true. He should put that on his resume. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's passed away. Well, I know. I mean, he should have put it on his resume. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, another trivia. These are coming from IMDb's trivia page. Oh, another fun thing about the Atlantean language. 
is that it reads from left to right, drops down a line, and then reads from right to left, continuing this cycle. So it's done to create a flowing water-like movement reminiscent of the Atlantean culture. Damn. Now that is cool. That is cool. I, I Anyone knows out there of another language that reads like that, I would love to know about it. I feel like most of the budget for this movie must have gone towards creating this language. Yeah. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's one of the things that this movie gets credited for. Yeah. People will yeah, say cool. yeah. detail they paid attention to to the Atlanteans uh, to get details like that. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another trivia fact. After Milo gets seasick on the ship at the very beginning, he throws up over the side of the boat and says, Carrots. Why are there always carrots? I didn't even eat carrots. Which apparently <laughs> was an ad-libbed line by Michael J. Fox. I remember that. That was funny and odd. <laughs> Does anyone have this problem out there? <laughs> no. Is this a thing? It's just the storage of carrots that you always have in your stomach. Is there some like hashtag going around Twitter? Like, why is it always carrots? <laughs> that was uh, that was odd. I guess if we ever get to meet Michael J. Fox, maybe we can, we can ask, ask him, him about it. Yeah. Darren, we've reached the point in the show. Where we got to make a decision. Once and for all, is this movie a good movie or a bad movie? I have a strange feeling. I could be wrong, but I have a strange feeling this is going to be our first disagreement. I'm going to say this was a good movie. I enjoyed it. I thought it was entertaining. Uh, my biggest caveat was that I, I wish they did a better job capturing Atlantis from a visual standpoint and the visual aspects as they're getting to Atlantis um but overall like as a standalone animated kind of adventure comedy I thought it was pretty good I I found myself being entertained so I'm gonna say this is a good movie I'm gonna say this was a bad movie hey finally disagree on one like I said before the humor was so bad and didn't work for me that it completely took me out of the movie ruined the movie for me. I think they focused on the wrong character. I would have loved to really have focused on Kida as opposed to Milo. And I applaud them for what they tried. Like, I have no problem with them trying an adventure movie. I mean, we've had some great Disney adventure movies in the past. So, I'm I'm fine that they went for it. I'm fine that they were experimenting with this, uh, you know, new styles of animation and using computer animated to mix with their hand drawn animation. This movie just does not work for me. I think if you're gonna go back to the post Renaissance Disney era, you're probably better off with Emperor's New Groove, which I think the humor is much better in that movie, uh, and Lilo and Stitch, which is probably a more well rounded movie. Uh, yeah I think this is one that you could skip there you have it there you have it and that is the point of the show because it doesn't matter if you think it's a good movie or a bad movie but there are no meh movies allowed on this show now thanks for listening everybody our next episode coming up next week coming out in theaters is Godzilla So it's time for us to go out and find a meh monster movie. And it's a pretty good monster we found. (laughs) So 
It's going to be a fun episode. Come back. Check us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. And please subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcasting app you are listening on. You can follow us on Twitter at NoMehMovies. And you can also leave us a message using the Anchor app. Let us know what you thought of the movie or ask us a question about the movie. We plan on collecting our favorite responses and doing a listener mailbag episode in the future. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for supporting the show. And the next time your friends ask about a movie, take a stance like me and Darren did today and tell them if the movie is good or bad. Because on this show, there are no meh movies.